0: Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos in Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. Today, we're talking about the historical presence of Latinos in the Midwest with Professor Omar Valerio Jimenez. Valerio Jimenez is a professor of history at the University of Texas at San Antonio. He was born in Matamoros, Tamaulipas, and grew up in South Texas. He teaches courses on borderlands, Latinas and Latinos, immigration, race, ethnicity, and the American West. Bienvenido a este episodio, Omar.
1: Gracias, gracias.
0: Uh, first of all, I'm happy to have the first Paisano in the podcast. When did you leave Matamoros?
1: Uh, well, first, thank you for this opportunity um, to share my personal and academic experiences. Um, I was um, very excited to learn that you were also from Matamoros. So uh, my family left uh, Matamoros in, uh, when I was um, uh, six years old. Um, we moved to Taft, Texas, a small town near Corpus Christi. And I had just finished my first year of school at the Escuela, uh, Primera,
2: mm-hmm. uh, Primaria, mm-hmm. uh,
1: Escuela Primaria 2030 mm-hmm. uh, in Matamoros. And um, it was, uh, I was going to say, because I know you're interested in language, um, it was a somewhat traumatic experience for me uh, because I knew very little English. Right. And I remember that um, uh, a small a, a short, a, a small uh, sort of argument that I had, it was sort of my first intellectual argument with uh, a <laughs> A neighbor, um, a small boy, uh, who was probably uh, in second or third grade, or was going to enter second and third grade, and it was the summer uh, b- when we moved, so I was about to enter second grade and tap, mm-hmm. and, um, and he found out where I was from, or where, where you know, he said, where are you from, or where are you coming from, you know, and I said, well, we just moved here from Mexico, mm-hmm. and it was really interesting, because uh, I'm mentioning this, because it sort of intellectually uh, has stayed with me, and it's uh, the it's, uh, reason that I'm, I'm writing this, I just finished writing the second book. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the debate was about the, the, the U.S.-Mexican War, uh, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, I was, I was, you know, I'd grown up in Matamoros and gone to school there. My parents, you know, and my sister and brother, older sister and brother, had gone to school in, in Mexico. And so I knew, uh, you know, Mexico's version of the U.S.-Mexican War,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: Mm-hmm. And my neighbor, um, he was Tejano, he knew the U.S. version, and we disagreed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was really interesting. And that conversation has stuck with me. And I started thinking about sort of the his- history and memory of the U.S.-Mexican War. Anyway, and that's what my second book is about. Um, and I actually sh- I actually begin my book with that, that story, that vignette.
0: Hmm. Wow, uh, yes. You're, you're, I you're, mean, they're, the they're stories funny. that we carry with us, right, and that have an impact later mm-hmm. on in life. Uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, like growing up with the Mexica- Mexican version of that um the war. Right. And, and I remember, um, thinking about like, I remember when I first, I just remember right now when the I first, um, learned, you know, or studied that, um, how much I hated Santa Ana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. That was the right. first, you know, like reaction to it, but yeah, definitely. Um, that is, um, is a unique story. Right. And, and, and then to, to think about what the version that the U S, um, teaches, you know, in and, and that contrast. So very, very interesting. Uh, so, Omar, but you didn't start as a historian. You were an engineer and then switched right. to history. Tell me about this journey.
1: Sure. Um, thank you for asking about that. Um, so I went to school in public schools, um, and I ended up, uh, we moved from Taft uh, to Corpus, and then from there to Edinburgh, Texas, which is down in the, in the valley, the Rio Grand Valley of Texas.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um so I went to school mainly in Edinburgh, um, and you know I went to public schools. And uh, in general, you know I I did I excelled in math and science, um, and so I ended up gravitating towards that. Partly also because I had cousins in Mexico who were all you know engineers. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. what you do, you know, if you mm-hmm. get an education in Mexico and you're you're a, you're a man, usually um, that's what you gravitate towards that. And so. You know that's what I, I decided to do, and, and my first year uh, in, 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 um, as a, in college, I took this un, uh, this class, the Spanish literature class, which is another thing I wanted to share with you, mm-hmm. um, because my roommate, um, his advisor was the Spanish literature professor, and she asked if uh, she asked him if he spoke Spanish, and he said yeah, and so she said, you know, I'd like to have some Spanish native Spanish speakers in the class, so he said okay, and uh, my roommate is also a Spanish speaker, so. So we both got in, and it was a small class, only about 15 students, and half were native Spanish speakers, and half were, were not. And um, But most of the most of the sp- native Spanish speakers were from Latin America, and my roommate and I were the only sort of, like well, the only Chicano, the only Mexican-American, and there was mm-hmm. one Puerto Rican in the class as well. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that class, you know, we read like uh, Carlos Fuentes, we, we read um, Los de Alajo, mm-hmm. we read you know really, really great um you know literature, mm-hmm. but it was also we read some literature that that got us the class to discuss sort of u s involvement mm-hmm. in um in Latin America
2: right mm-hmm.
1: and it was the first time I had already been exposed to that so the the Latin America, the students in Latin America were very critical of u s foreign policy right and i and I couldn't understand it because I had gone you know grown up in this conservative environment in Texas mm-hmm. where you know that wasn't really discussed mm-hmm. and so I remember calling my brother my older brother and saying hey you know like there's this criticism of the US and blah, you know and, and all this and he goes yeah and I said well how come you never told me and he said well I you never <laughs> asked <laughs> and so anyway um, so so at the end of the class I at the end of the semester I asked the, the professor can you know can you recommend another class and she did for the next semester because I was, at, I was in an engineering school, and so we only had to take one so-called humanities class mm-hmm. a semester, which is sort of amazing. Right. And, and she recommended this class called Intellectuals and Social Change. And, and I said, sure, you know, I'll take it, because I said, I want to learn more about what we've been discussing in class, because, you know, this has just been something completely new. And um, so the class was, so I enrolled in the class, and, and the class was taught by an English professor, co-taught by an English professor, and a linguistics professor and and the linguistics professor i knew nothing about i knew nothing about either one but the linguistics professor turned out to be noam chomsky mm, and so that wow. sort of completely <laughs> completely turned my world upside down mm-hmm. you know i was just uh, i just thought what 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 happened you know what how come i've never known about all these things about mm-hmm. you know us intervention in latin america and so forth and so that got me into sort of into the path of basically Taking more and more classes, and so um, I was at a school where they didn't really have that many um, history classes on Latin America. So I ended up taking classes uh, at a, at another school nearby, and and uh, and also I ended up basically double majoring uh, in something they called their humanities and engineering, and also electrical engineering mm-hmm. and computer science. And so um, I actually thought of transferring, but um, but there was a there was this big sort of ethic uh, there. Um, that you know you shouldn't leave you know you you know or you can't handle you know, the engineering classes and so i just stayed but uh but i my my sort of <laughs> my compromise was that i was going to double major and so um so i did and then when i graduated um i worked for 5 years as an engineer i came back to texas um, and worked for 5 years and then while i was doing that i i met a i met a professor uh, a chicana professor uh who you know who um who needed some help with some computer stuff. So I helped her. And in the process, she told me about, you know, what she was, um, what she was studying. And also I had read a book that sort of changed sort of my, my understanding of, of, um, Texas history. I had read David Montejano's Anglos and Mexicans in the making of Texas. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, that's what I want to be doing. And so I took some classes, um, you know, after my, you know, after work, um, at the university of Houston. And, um, and you know, took some sociology classes. I think a, a anthropology class, a history class, and then an acoustics class, an engineering class, just to see, you know, if, if you know, if I really want what I really wanted to do. And I just decided um, that I really wanted to do um, to history. So mm. so then I went to I went to UCLA.
0: Wow, that's amazing. That's a great journey. That's a great story, really. And then to have Noam yeah, Ch- yeah. Chomsky and as a professor, <laughs> he just turned ninety-two, yeah, by the no. way. <laughs>
1: I know, I know. He, I know, yeah, he he's amazing. Yeah. Um and you know, I I always wanted, I mean, I you know, I'm not going to do this, but I I always wanted to sort of um emulate the way he would respond to questions because I would hear him not just in class, but he would give lectures, you know, at, you know, at MIT, and I would I would um I would hear him respond to, you know, criticism and he was just his his the, the way he could like just call forth, you know, or or recall these facts. Uh it was just amazing and I just thought I, I <laughs> wanna be doing that someday. Right, right. So. He's, he is brilliant. Yeah.
0: Uh Omar, you uh you've done research about Latinos in the Midwest and specifically about Mexican migrants in Iowa. In one of uh-huh. your articles, you challenged the reference to the Midwest as the heartland, which often evokes images associated with rural, small town, and predominantly white spaces, that is, European settlers. Novelists Willa Cather and Mary Sandoz do come to mind when I think of, um, you know, the heartland um, or the plains. Uh, and while we also encounter this history in places like Iowa and Nebraska— the landscape has changed, and Mexican families, whether they are migrant, immigrants, but also native to this region, have been part of this region, right? Uh, talk to us about this history.
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, right. So when, when I was at the University of Iowa, um, actually, let, let, me, let me back up and say something. Um, when, we, when we moved there, uh, I was moving from California. I had had a job there in, 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 at um, Cal State Long Beach in California, and my wife and I both got jobs at the University of Iowa. So we were driving um, on the um, I eighty. Oh my goodness! Um, How long was that uh, drive? <laughs> and, yeah, and and we were driving there, and 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 we just entered Iowa. We were between Des Moines, um, which is the capital, and Iowa City, and my wife was driving, and I was you know looking out the window, and I saw this sign and it said Montezuma, Iowa. And hmm. I thought, what? <laughs> uh, you know, like, uh, this, is, this is amazing, right? Like, why would there be a town called Montezuma in the middle of Iowa? Hmm. And so, so as soon as we got there, I, you know, I started, looking, I started looking to it, and I found out that basically it has to do, once again, with the U.S.-Mexican War.
2: Hmm.
1: Um, so, you know, when, when um, uh, these towns were named, they were named um, in, the, in the 1840s, uh, after the U.S.-Mexican War, mm-hmm. and so the returning vets, returning veterans, uh, basically named some some counties and towns in Iowa after battles or after you know place names or after you know some certain historical figures in in Mexico. So there's like a Buena Vista, Iowa. There's a Cerro Gordo, Iowa, mm-hmm. and, and so forth. And Palo, uh, Palo Alto, which is one of the first battles in South Texas in Brownsville near Brownsville, and. Um, Anyway, so that got me thinking. I was like, you know, this is really interesting. And so one of the things, when I was in graduate school, one of my professors had told me that one of the things that he used to do, uh, he'd moved around various universities, that he would always assign sort of like a oral history project to, you know, his upper division graduate students, I mean undergraduates, to get to know the area where he was teaching. Mm
2: -hmm. He said, because one of
1: the things is, you know, you – you you ask the students to interview their family members, and then you learn like you know about what what sort of what the community is like, um, you know if the, if the if the students are from you know nearby, and and so I, I, I decided to try to do that, and, and and while I was doing that or while I was you know thinking about that project, um, the University of Iowa um, had this um uh it has a there's, a there's a there's a there's a sort of a special collections library called uh, or. Kind of a special collection library called um, the Iowa Women's Archive um, at the University of Iowa at mm. the main library, and they gave a presentation and invited me to the presentation and It was, uh, it was about this project that they were sort of uh, uh, sort of finalizing in the process of finalizing called the Mujeres Latinas Project. Mm. And I was blown away because basically they had collected all of these um, oral interviews as mm. well as you know uh, letters and you know, newspapers and so forth from Latinas, uh, not just in Iowa. I mean, they had started with Iowa, but they, you know, expanded to like Nebraska and neighboring, you know, uh, states like, uh, like Illinois and um, Minnesota. And basically, because they, they had a lot of material on on uh, white Iowa women, right? Mm-hmm. And they had, done a, they had done a research, they had done a project to gather uh, the stories of African-American women. And so then they start, started doing something on Latinas because they had a, they, there was a, a, an archivist who was Latina, who's actually from San Antonio, who, had, who was helping them. And so they invited me to do that and, and I thought this is great. So so I went and um and I you know, I, I learned about the, the projects and I got some photos from them and I got, you know, some some information about, you know, the, the the presence of Latinos in Iowa. And I was teaching my first class that semester and so at the end of the toward the end of the class I thought, Well I'm gonna give a section on Iowa, right? Uh, on Latinos in Iowa. And there was a it was a class on Mexican American history, and there was about 30 students in the class. And you know how there's always some students who just don't don't speak. You know mm-hmm. they just you know you ask them you ask them questions, and you know I would do like general questions for the whole class, and then I would also do small group discussion. And there was just certain students who I never heard from, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't like to call them out, you know. And I was it was my first semester, so I just thought you know I'm just gonna I'm gonna just uh, not not really put them on the spot. But I was showing these slides that I had gotten from the Mujeres Latinos Project mm. about Latinos in the so-called Quad Cities. Uh, these are four cities uh, on, the, on the, uh, the border between Illinois and Iowa. Um, and, and as I was doing this, um, I, you know, I, there were several photos. And one of the photos, um, uh, well, so, so, so I was advancing the slides, right, or it was on PowerPoint. But this student who had never spoken raised her hand. And um, and I knew, I, I suspect that she might be Latina because of her surname, but her first name was like Audrey or something, so I wasn't sure, right? Mm-hmm. I thought, well, you know, who knows? Um, it might be her married name or something. Anyway, she she raised her hand and she said, could you back up to the previous slide? And I said, mm. yeah, sure. And I backed up and she said, you know, you see the woman on the left up there? And I said, yeah. She said, that's my grandmother. Oh my goodness. And she was born in the Quad Cities. Mm. And, I, my God, and I thought, <laughs> oh my God. And then for the rest of the semester, she was participating.
2: Mm-hmm. She was
1: like active. She was talking, mm-hmm. and it was a class on Mexican American history. But I was like, "This is great. This is this is what we need. I need to, I need to, um, to incorporate the history of Latinos in right. this. I mean, the history of Latinos in Iowa in this class. Even though there's not, the, I don't know that much about it, but I need to do it because it's going to get students involved and, mm-hmm. and interested. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I started doing. You know. And I was finishing my, fir- my book, my first book, and so I had to, you know, put sort of a little bit of, of that project on hold. Um, but anyway, but, but I ended up, you know, writing this, this research paper on, or, you know, not a research paper, I'm sorry, writing a, a journal article that I published in the Annals of Iowa on uh, early Mexican communities uh, in, in the state. And basically what I found was that, um, you know, that Latinos have been, you know, uh, traveled to Iowa since the since the late 19th century, mm-hmm. and you know eventually they started staying as they you know they bought their families. But in general, it fit the pattern of Latinos in the Midwest, you know, as a whole, which is the first Latinos who, who arrived in the Midwest are going to be Mexicans or Mexican Mexican immigrants and Mexican Americans, mm-hmm. and they're going to first arrive as um, usually it's it's men unaccompanied men. They're not necessarily single, but they're they're not they don't bring their families if they're married. Mm-hmm. at first and then eventually you know they'll start they started working on um, for the sugar beet in the sugar beet industry and then some of them also were working in railroad construction and maintenance um, and it was sort of um it was a, a concerted effort by the sugar beet companies and the railroads to recruit uh, all, along the border mainly in, in, along the, the Texas Mexico border and they would send agents down to recruit uh, labor contractors and they would tell them, you know, you, we have a job for you if you want, and, you know, and we'll pay your passage and so forth. And they really didn't pay the passage. They just, char- they just sort of charged them for it later, and right. they deducted mm-hmm. from their, their paycheck. But anyway, um, but they wanted to recruit mainly uh, unattached men, and, and preferably single men, because they didn't want um, these men, Mexican men, to stay in these communities. They just wanted them to to work for a while, like for the harvest or while they were doing maintenance work on the railroads. Mm -hmm. And then they wanted to to leave the community. And they were afraid, these companies were afraid that, that um, the local community, local white communities would, would get upset that there were these Mexican people living among them. Mm -hmm. And so, so the first thing they did was they recruited these unattached men. And then eventually their policy switched in the early 20th century uh, to like by the 1920s, to recruiting uh, uh, men with families because they realized that men with families were more stable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're more likely to, you know, stay at the job because they had families that they were, you know, that they, they were, were were with them and they needed, that they depended on them. So, um, so that so that's what ended up happening. And and, and this and this is um, uh, was consistent with what happen in other states. Um, you know, as I as I did sort of secondary research on say Michigan and on Wisconsin. Uh, even Ohio this is this is the same thing that happened right this pattern of mm-hmm. you know single men first coming and or unattached men and then later bringing their families with them um, and then you know so the first Latinos were Mexican Mexican American and then eventually uh, Puerto Ricans are going to start arriving
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, during um, during a, a World War II and Operation Bootstrap um, and um, and then, you know, uh, Central Americans and you know Cuban Americans and so forth are, are going to arrive later in the seventies and eighties uh, to the to various places in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that that surprised me is just that that there is this long history uh, in various states in the Midwest, and, but but most people don't know about it, and even even people you know who live in the area, you know, who live in Iowa, who live in Minnesota, mm-hmm. who live in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, they they think that you know that Latinos have just arrived you know in like in the 1970s and, and, and 80s and so forth and so that was part of my motivation as well to you know to um to to do this research and while I was doing this research I also uh, decided that the University of Iowa has these, has this um, this sort of humanities center it's uh, the Oberman Center for Advanced Research that sponsors all sorts of symposia and uh, and research projects and so I, I applied for a grant. And I got the grant to sponsor a symposium, and so I decided to do it on the Latino Midwest.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
1: got mm-hmm. some um, these other professors to, to help me: Santiago Diego Vasquez, who' who's in was in Spanish and Portuguese there, and Claire Fox, who's in the English department, uh, but who both both of them you know were really interested in Latinos and in the Midwest. And so we we had this three week three day symposium that was just fabulous. We brought artists and we brought musicians. We brought Lila Downs. We brought um, Luis Alberto Urea, mm-hmm. Uh And just to speak about their experience, like Lila Downs, I didn't know, also has a connection to the Midwest. She grew mm-hmm. up part of the time in Minnesota. I think her dad was a professor. And so, so you know, this was just really exciting. And, and it was part of our effort to sort of just begin a Latino studies program at Iowa, because Iowa was, at the time that I was there, uh, didn't have a Latino studies program and it was the only institution in the Big Ten that without one.
0: And this was the early early two thousands, correct?
1: Yeah, it was the early two thousands, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved there in um in I guess twenty two thousand two thousand six mm-hmm. um, and and I and I left the University of Iowa in two thousand fifteen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um so yeah. Um, and anyway, we used we use this information to sort of pressure the university and, and also, you know, the Latino Midwest symposium to show them that there was a lot of interest. There was a lot of, you know, it was really, pop, it was a really popular symposium. Um, and, uh, and then afterwards, um, to pressure the university to think about starting a, a Latino studies program and they did eventually. But anyway, after the symposium, we also got, uh, another grant from the same, um, uh, center, the Old Roman Center to, um, to to conduct this uh, what they call a summer seminar and where we invited um, uh, scholars this time, exclusively scholars uh, on the Midwest from various fields like linguistics and anthropology and political science and so forth um, to come for a week and and sort of workshop papers that they might be um, thinking of uh, contributing to uh, a volume that we wanted to to, um, publish Uh, and that turned out to be the Latino Midwest Reader. Mm-hmm. Which we publish with the University of Illinois Press, right? And um, I, I use and some so that of those was just,
0: chapters, and my I, I teach a class um, uh, that has to do with immigration and Latinos in Ohio, and we talk about Latinos in the Midwest. So we we read a couple of chapters from that reader.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, great! Mm-hmm. Great! Excellent! Yeah. So so that was that was a really good experience, and then um, they've had they've they've had a sort of a. A second, uh, not, not exactly a Latino Midwest symposium, but a, a, another um, sort of a seminar, a big seminar about two years ago there uh, called uh, I, uh, Imagining Latinidades,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: but it was sort of in a similar vein. Um, um, so that was my entry into that, and, and I've really enjoyed it. You know, I've really enjoyed, um, you know, living in the Midwest and also doing research on it, and, and I hope to actually write a book about Latinos in the Midwest in general, mm-hmm. sort of a a synthetic book, a uh, you know,
0: history book. Right, right. Uh, so in your research and, and your travels, too, living in, in, in the Midwest as well, I'm sure you've found that there is a strong connection between Texas and several parts of the Midwest. There are many people that have moved to Michigan, Ohio, and other places, of um, Illinois to come to the university and for jobs. Tell me more about this marked history between Texas and the Midwest.
1: Okay. Well, so, so I would mentioned it earlier briefly that one of the ways that, that this sort of connection began was that labor recruiters from, you know, agriculture, the agricultural industry and the railroad industry in the late 19th and early 20th century began sending labor contractors to um, border towns
2: mm-hmm. in Texas
1: to recruit so that was part of it right um but as we know or as immigration historians know that you know once you start once you once an immigration you know stream begins or Mm -hmm. a migration stream begins um even after the labor recruiters stop recruiting in texas Mm -hmm. uh, or along the us mexico border the migration is going to continue because people develop these social networks right so you know uh one person tells their their uncle their cousin, and so forth, and they tell them you know there's jobs here and 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 so the migration is going to continue and so um that that's how it that's how that's how I would explain it you know that I think that's one way that to explain it, and that's that that these agricultural workers and railroad workers told their friends and family, and they just kept coming and one of the reasons that the Midwest was appealing and you know um back then is the same reason that actually it's appealing today to many Latino immigrants, which is that, you know, the cost of living is lower, mm-hmm. um, you know, in some communities they feel safer, they're, you know, they're, they're, right. they're, um, their children are, are shielded from sort of these so-called urban problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but interestingly enough, in, at least in the, in, the, in, the, in the early 20th century, some of the migrants who moved there from places like Texas or even from Mexico would say, you know, there's less racism. Yeah. There's less overt racism than we experience in Texas,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: at least in the early 20th century, and so and other people have discovered this. That I also Vargas um, wrote wrote has written several books about uh, about you know laborers in the Midwest, and that's one of the things he's he's also discovered or he wrote about. Um, and so what's really interesting to me is you know that these patterns of you know like. These so-called push and pull factors, you know, in immigration history, uh, some of them have stayed the same. Obviously, there's some, there's some differences as, as well. But the the appeal of the Midwest um, has has um, has remained in, has remained in some ways um, the same for for some people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, I, I've I've spoken to people at the University of Iowa who work there and who are from the Midwest Latinos, and I've asked them, you know, how did your family end up here? And they told they told me, well, this is you know, they first moved from Mexico to Texas or to California, but they just thought, you know, there's just a lot of, um, a, a lot of distractions for, the, for children that, you know, they got involved in, in, in things that they shouldn't have gotten involved with. And then we heard, you know, we had a cousin or a relative in, in, in Iowa or in Illinois, and we just decided to try it. And, mm-hmm. you know, the jobs were paid better, and, you know, it was sort of more calm, you know, societies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, away from sort of the urban um, environments like L.A. or San Antonio or something. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I just find that fascinating.
0: Right. I mean, I've interviewed people here um, with the I have an oral history project and I've interviewed people that have moved to Ohio that they're not an em- immigrants right there they just come from other states um and like you said they've come to from like new york city um or even chicago um and they choose ohio because of you know maybe more jobs less crime better education i mean there are disadvantaged um disadvantages of that too because once they come with their families um Ohio does not have a high language vitality. Right? Spanish uh, is not right. spoken uh, spoken as um, widely here as you know in the Bronx right. or you know in places in New York City or in Chicago. So, so that you know, so they also mention you know losing some of that. Um, the culture and the and the language. Um, so, as someone that uh, teaches and researches uh, language and culture, I'm interested in what you document regarding migrant families' access to education and the struggle to fit in, uh, to hold on to one's roots while also immersing oneself in mainstream society. Which Includes perhaps struggling with language, both English and Spanish, depending on what generation within a family we're we're talking about, we're dealing with, and that, and you know, and I'm sure that you found this, you know, in earlier uh, years, uh, decades, but um, that's certainly something that happens today. Uh, did you find that this was happening even when new families came to the region, either Iowa or? Any other area um, of the Midwest, which, as you highlight in your research, uh, most looked for you know Mexican neighborhoods to live in.
1: Sure, right, and, and so and this is also sort of a common pattern in immigration history, right? Mm-hmm. So when when you study when we study um, you know the the migration, say Italian Italian immigrants, right, or Jewish immigrants, right. Uh, when they first arrive, they're going to in the U.S., like in New York or Chicago or San Francisco, they're going to uh, gravitate to neighborhoods where there's other people like them, right? Mm-hmm. Like other Italian immigrants or other Jewish immigrants, right? And that's why you get these, you know, um, Italian, you know, neighborhoods like mm-hmm. Little Italy <laughs> or, or, or you know, or Chinatowns and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's sort of a common thing. And one of the things that's that's different about Mexican immigration, um, at least uh, in terms of uh, one one subgroup of Latinos, is that unlike Italian immigration, uh, which sort of um, uh, stopped for the most part in the early 20th century um, as a result of various things like the quota laws of the 1920s, um, Mexican immigration has continued. Mm. Uh, and so there's always new newly arrived Mexican immigrants mm-hmm. uh, and there's not as many and there's, well, I mean a large number of them where there's not as many today for example or in the 1970s there's not as many um, it's newly arrived Italian immigrants right mm-hmm. um, and so uh, so there's that difference the point I wanted to make was that Mexican immigrants who gravitated towards you know Mexican neighborhoods um, that wasn't, that's not, that's not unique to Mexicans or, you know, mm-hmm. if it happens right. with Puerto Ricans as well, going to Chicago, you know, it's not unique to them. It happens to all immigrant groups or migrant groups. Uh, in the case of Puerto Ricans, they're not immigrants, they're migrants. Right. But, um, but the other thing is that, you know, uh, you know, once in the Midwest, uh, Mexicans or Puerto Ricans. When they, bring, when they brought their families with them and they have children, they're going to want those children, you know, um, to, uh, to, to learn the language obviously mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, to learn English and so there's going to be uh, there was an emphasis on trying trying to make sure that their that their children were as prepared as possible uh, unfortunately in the early 20th century in, in Iowa and in other places in the Midwest um, there was a type of segregation um, of Mexicanos, uh which is um, and I learned this also through uh, through some graduate students at the University of Iowa who who did research on this and I wish this research would get published soon to, mm-hmm. so that more people would know about it. But but at least in Iowa, uh, some schools would, would segregate uh, Mexican children in so-called Mexican rooms. Mm. They would attend schools with, with white children, okay? Mm-hmm. But they would place the Mexican children in in a room by themselves or, you know, uh, isolate them. And sometimes in, in some strange cases, they would also place African Americans there. And the reason I say strange is because the reason that the school gave to, to isolate the Mexicans uh, in these Mexican rooms is because they wanted to supposedly teach them English, um, and in some cases, you know, some of the children might have not known as much as much English as as they needed to learn. But but in other cases, it was just it was just because they wanted to segregate them, you know, racially,
2: mm-hmm. or,
1: um, and because the children knew English, you know, um, they had grown up in Iowa or you know. Or, um, or, you know, also in the Midwest and had, you know, were fluent in English, uh, but they were still isolated in, in the Mexican rooms. So, but but, but I think the, the, you know, what what I've learned at least uh, in, in doing this research on, on uh, Latinos in the Midwest is that, you know, uh, parents of children, or, you know, Latino parents were just as interested, and, 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 and some people might make the argument that they were more interested in making sure their children get a good education because... Mm-hmm. Especially those who had immigrated from Mexico and understood the struggles of that they had to go through, right, to immigrate, and so they wanted to make sure their children were going to be successful. And they knew that, as parents, like just like my parents in here in Texas, um, they knew that if they didn't speak English very well, they're going to struggle to get better-paying jobs. And so they wanted to make sure their children are going to, you know, learn English as as as, as best as they could. Um, so I think there's there's always been that sort of emphasis I think um, uh, on education, uh, but but obviously the, the opportunities aren't always there. The education opportunities weren't always there. Um, but the other thing I, I learned, at least in, in some small communities in, in Iowa, is that there were some communities of various where there was various immigrants working in say in like there was a cement company um, um, in this town called um, where the, the neighborhood was called Lehigh Row. Um, in in sort of eastern, central, central eastern Iowa. And they, um, uh, the children would mix with other Im- immigrant children, like with Greek immigrants, with, um, with Italian immigrants in the early 20th century. And, you know, they felt, how, how, how do I say this? They felt uh, a, a, like a, because they, they all lived in the community, they felt uh, sort of a common bond uh, as children of immigrants. And they, they also felt, felt a common bond in terms of, um being being seen as different by the by the sort of um the white iowans um and so they also tried to you know um uh, uh, they had a sort of similar emphasis on the importance of education Mm -hmm. to get ahead and so that was a sort of a, a common pattern as well
0: right right um one of the things that you've said, you know, a couple of times already, and, and I, you know, and I love to hear and I just agree with you, right, uh, 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 about the presence of Latinos in the Midwest dating, you know, back to the 1800s. And I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, um, I have a colleague at the University of uh, Nebraska-Lincoln, um, and they have a project uh, about family letters, uh, and it's called On the Migration from Jesusita to Jane, Um Oh. And this is you should check it out for for sure. Um, and this yeah. is uh, a um, the history of this is pretty neat. Um, a couple of years ago, there was this family there in Nebraska that had that found this baúl, no, it's like a suitcase full of letters, and and they knew it was family letters, but um, they really didn't know what to do with them. Right, they were all in Spanish, um, and the family. Um, You know, they had two choices: we throw them away, (laughs) or let's see if somebody at the university is interested in them. So, so she got this, you know, like lottery ticket. I think (laughs) she won the. In in my view, in my view, Um, and so she, you know, she received this this. letters you know between um this family and and it documents this you know it documents many things a family history the uh, migration between Mexico and in Nebraska, they were all in Spanish, um, but, you know, they talk about the just life there, um, language issues, education, you name it, right? Um, and so the the archive now is, um, is available. I mean, they're working on the digital archive, but they're, you know, um, coding, they're translating, they're making all of this archive available for us to to study and to hopefully use to teach as well, right? This history of uh, Latinos in the Midwest. Uh, but yeah, I mean as it, the the late eighteen hundreds with when this um letters you know were written wow um and this is one family right this is just one family that um that she's documenting, but I'm sure obviously that there were many um that didn't really that that we don't have you know access to something you know like a like a suitcase full of letters, which is amazing to me right um right. but the, so there is this long in in you know, as as more projects and like you said, these graduate students. You know what you were saying is very very interesting about you know what, what's happening in the in the schools and how you know there was segregation between and in the school systems um, uh, here in the Midwest, right? And in, in, in ways that we we don't know yet or we it's not. Widely known, right? Um, yet this history exists, and 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 it needs to be, you know, published. It needs to be accessible to us. Um, so, so there are, you know, there are initiatives, there are documents that date, um, you know, Latino presence, uh, you know, from from a couple of centuries ago. But what continues, um, or what contributes to the thinking that? that they or we are new arrivals to the Midwest, um, that this is a new community when we have many generations who have called the Midwest home for more than 100 years. Uh, When does one claim belonging to a region? And this might be, you know, what you were saying about this steady flow of migration that continues to exist among Mexicans or Latinos in general, which maybe contributes to the perception that you know, it's a new community, even though we're right. not, right?
1: Right. Well, I think, so, so I think there's, there's, there's at least a couple of factors, maybe more. Um, but one of them is, you just mentioned, right, that Latinos, uh, you know, from, from Mexico, from Central America, are continuing to come to the U.S., right? Um, and they have done so. I mean, like, Mexicanos have been coming, you know, arriving in the Midwest since the, since the late 19th century. Puerto Ricans a little later, and then you know, Central Americans you know, in the 1970s, and, and Cuban, Cuban Americans as well, probably in the 60s, maybe, in the 70s. Um, so that's part of it. Um, and, and so you have new arrivals who are going to be perhaps not as fluent in English and so forth. And so uh, when you know, white Iowans or white Midwesterns encounter them, they think, well, you know, they're recent immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas you're not going to think of German, you know, German um, Americans as recent immigrants because they've, they've been in Iowa or the Midwest, you know, since the early, uh, since the late 19th century, early 20th century, right? Um, mm-hmm. And there's not recent ones and there's not that many recent ones, right? Uh, but I think another reason, um, another factor is that I think for, for many uh, Midwesterners, um, they might not necessarily encounter uh, that many Latinos, uh, like in the 1930s or 1940s, because they lived in sort of isolated pockets of the Midwest, whereas today I think they're more dispersed. They're more they're they're in more communities throughout mm-hmm. the Midwest. So, for example, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was about how uh, some Mexicanos are going to end up living among other Mexicanos. and mm-hmm. part of it has to just you know what I already explained that they're going they're going to search each other out. Right. But another one has to do with. Many of these companies establish communities for the workers. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to be, you know, living, in, you know, near work, right. near, like, say, an agricultural plant or a cement factory or a railroad yard or whatever. And so if you're not, you know, if you live in the Midwest and you don't live near mm-hmm. that agricultural, you know, company, that sugar beet com- company or, um, or that railroad yard, you're not going to see them that often, even though they've been there for a while, right? Uh, so, like, they've been in the Quad Cities for, for generations, but if you don't live in the Quad Cities, if you live in other parts of Iowa, you're not going to see them. Um, or, you know, Chicago, if you don't, you know, you, you might you might be from Illinois, but if you don't live in Chicago, you might not know that there's been this long presence of not just Mexicanos, but Puerto, Puerto Ricans, Puerto Ricanos, uh, who've lived there since the 40s, um, um, and who have been have been mixing, you know. Uh, and, you know, there's this great sort of um, uh, dynamic of uh, Latino community in, in places like Chicago because um, there's, there's been a longstanding Latino uh, community of Puerto Ricans and Mexicans, unlike other places where there's, uh, like in the Southwest, there's mainly Mexicanos or in 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 New York, in the New mm-hmm. Jersey area where there's there's been a longer presence of Puerto, R- Puerto Ricans, right? Uh, and now there's more of a mixing, right? But, right. but the Midwest has this sort of, long-standing, long history of various Latinos communities being there uh, around, you know, for, um, for a longer time and sort of mixing and so forth, and uh, intermarrying even as well. And so um, so one of my colleagues on the Latino Midwest project, uh, Frances Aparicio mm. uh, mentions, you know, or talks about that. And, and she wrote a book called Negotiating Latinidad, where she describes how um, there's sort of new identities being formed um, by Latinos where, uh, I mean, the most common one is, you know, uh, children who are, par- who have a, have a parent who's Puerto Rican and another one who's Mexican, mm-hmm. call them Puerto Mexics, right? Uh, Puerto mm-hmm. Mexics or Mexican <laughs> And sense. um mm-hmm. yeah, and so you have, but there's other you know, with Cubans and Bolivians or mexicanos and Bolivians and so forth. And I think that's, that's a sort of a, I mean, it happens elsewhere. It's going to happen in L.A. It's going to happen in New York City. Right. But it's been happening in Chicago, places like Chicago, for longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. And perhaps places like Columbus, Ohio, I don't know um, as, as about Ohio as much. But I think that's one of the beauties of studying the Midwest because it hasn't been studied that much. But, yes, there's, 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 there's this really rich history that is left to, un- be, you know, to be uncovered. And, and, and there's a lot of graduate students and you know recently – um, recent, uh, recently, um, recent professors, you know, graduates mm-hmm. uh, who just become professors, mm-hmm. who are working on books about the Midwest, and I think it's just going to be in the next, you know, ten years. There's going to just be a lot of literature right.
2: on this. Right. Yes. When
1: you mention the thing about there's this long history from the going, mm-hmm. you know, you know. Um, I should mention there's a book because seeking of books. Uh, there's a book called the Tejano Diaspora by by Mark Rodriguez, mm. who describes this. Um, and so I think, um, so that's just one of the one of the somewhat recent books. I think it's been probably five or between five and ten years when it, when that book was published. Um, but but there's others, you know, there's people working on, you know, a, a lot of work on Michigan and Ohio, and obviously there's a lot of things on Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Right. But even, you know, Minnesota and Iowa now are, are being uh, studied. Right. Uh, and I think it's great, you know, and Nebraska, because like you said, um, I think uh, the more that this is published. The more uh, Latinos in those communities learn about their history, because mm-hmm. you know some of them might know a little bit, but they they know more through you know through sort of family memory, you know, the community community um, memory. Uh, but when they see it in print, I think it's a it's a different thing because you you get a, little, a bit of a validation. I think that's what or when you
0: see it in a in a PowerPoint class. picture, right? Like in your class. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. amazing. That's yeah. a great story. That's yeah. a great story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was that was that was really uh it was it was really significant for me.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Omar, is there anything else that you would like to add uh, to this conversation? I know you you um have a, a new book coming up. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Um sure. Well, my my new book um is is on um, the history and memory of the US-Mexican War. Uh, and it's about um several generations. So it's about historical memory and how a collective memory and how me- that memory is passed on from one generation to the next. So mm-hmm. it begins with the war and it ends in the 1970s. Uh, and I was just, um, you know, my my own experience, right, and as well as, um, you know, l- moving to Iowa and seeing this connection to the U.S.-Mexican war as well, uh, just got me thinking about that. And uh, while I was doing, you know, still finishing my first book. And so the book just explores how activists, how journalists, how, you know, common people remember the war. And what it meant to them, you know. Um, and it's not just the war in some cases, but it's more. It's also the treaty. So the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended the war, uh, gave Mexican Americans, um, gave the people who were living in places like California and Texas and New Mexico, the Mexicans that were living there, Mexican citizens, gave them an opportunity to become U.S. citizens. And most of them did. Um, so a year after the the treaty was signed, they automatically became U.S. citizens. Um, And what I find unique about that is that um, um, Mexican-Americans, because they were given citizenship in 1849 uh, or 1848 if they declared right away, but if they didn't declare it, then after a year, they would automatically become U.S. citizens. Um, They were legally seen as white because in 1848, the only people who could become U.S. citizens were whites, people who were considered white. Mm -hmm. And so um, Mexicans were legally considered white. And so... Um, and so that's unique because in terms of other today, what we would call people of color, uh, Mexicans are the first group that are incorporated, uh, and given citizenship o- upon their incorporation, uh, and also, uh, sort of given sort of at least legal, uh, entitlement to whiteness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Mexicans are not only the first Latinos, but they're also the first sort of today people of color who have these sort of claims to whiteness and that 's been sort of an advantage and a disadvantage in various ways right um, but but i I just find that fascinating and so 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 my book is about you know civil rights struggles uh, and related to the treaty because the treaty gave um, mexicans u s citizenship and it also allowed uh, um, future generations of Mexican immigrants to apply for citizenship and to be able to obtain it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I have found, you know, the book is not about Texas necessarily. It's about um, uh, the U.S. Southwest in general. Uh, I don't touch on the Midwest as much uh, mm-hmm. in the, my second book. Um, but but um, I hope in my third book that that will be something I can explore. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, so I'm really I'm really excited. It's, it's at the publishers now and I'm waiting for the second readers reports. So hopefully So um,
0: 2021. huh? Is when it comes out. I hope
1: <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> see. yeah. Right, right. So it's called it's called Remembering conquest. Uh-huh. So.
2: Uh-huh.
0: Omar, uh, gracias por esta conversación.
1: Ah, igualmente, gracias, muchas gracias, y, y este, um, u- otra vez me, me encanta que que eres de Matamoros.
0: <laughs> sí, gracias a todos. Gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima.